Hello and welcome to the Flatland in Focus podcast. I'm your host, D. Rashawn Gilmore, and you may know me from our monthly show airing every Thursday on Kansas City PBS. Each month, we focus on a new topic impacting folks in the greater KC area, and we always end up with so many great questions from the panel of experts and community members that we assemble. So in this podcast series, we want to give you everything we couldn't fit into that neat 30-minute show. So this includes everything from Flatland follow-up as well, our audience conversation that goes live on Instagram every third Thursday at 7.30 p.m., right after our show airs. Join me this month on Flatland and Focus as we delve deep into the crucial subject of media literacy. All right, welcome back to the studio. Our guests tonight are Dr. Terry Finneman, KU professor and publisher of the Eudora Times, Ashley Muddyman, associate professor from the KU Department of Communication Studies, and Antonia Layton, Belton High School student who participated in our media literacy workshop, and our very own Cami Coons, who is our rural reporter here at Flatland and who helped facilitate the workshop with American Public Square. Okay, so Cami, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the main points you wanted to get across to the public uh, in your presentation at the Media Literacy event. Yeah, the presentation that I gave was called Think Like a Journalist, Act Like a Fact Checker. And so the whole idea with that was not necessarily to, uh, you know, instill the next generation of journalists, although that'd be great. But the idea was that every day we're coming across so much information, be that on social media, from talking to friends and family, and then we're usually sharing that back out some way. So I just wanted to give folks the tools to better analyze and evaluate that information that we're taking in and then be more informed as we share that back out. And so what was the general response from the audience to what you shared? Um, I mean, I was talking to a crowd of high schoolers who were there on, you know, like 10 a.m. on a Friday. So uh, <laughs> not a whole lot of response, but I think generally they they enjoyed it and they they have a lot of these ideas in their heads already. You know, they're aware of the algorithms and the effect that that has on their feeds. And so I think they appreciated having a chance to, you know, take that a step further and, uh, yeah, think about it in terms of their role that they play in the media landscape. Well, and that's really interesting because there's some studies that suggest that 51% of Gen Zers, age 14 to 19, reported that they get their news from social media or from some sort of messaging service compared to just 33% of Gen Zers. And I imagine as the age goes up, the reliance on those tools goes down. But it makes me want to ask you, Antonia, a student from Belton, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the topic that your group really focused in on and what helpful tips came from that that might be useful for others? Yeah, we learned a lot about gun, gun violence online and we did a lot of fact checking. Thanks to the journalists, we were like able to fact check everything we did. So they talked to us about not believing everything we did on social media regarding like TikTokers maybe that you might look at, like you need to fact check, look at both sides, which is something that I learned from Kim's uh, presentation. It was actually great because a lot of us got to talking immediately afterwards, which allowed us to learn more about the fact checking, which in high school, I don't feel like they teach a lot about it. So how well do you feel that you and your friends at school, your peers, how well do you feel that you all actually navigate this misinformation landscape? And, like, and, and do you feel like you can identify it now better when you see it? Yeah, I feel like before that presentation, um, I didn't know anything about fact checking or like realizing what was misinformation or not. But now that I took that and I saw that presentation and I shared it with my friends because I grabbed some bulletin boards that they gave us, um, I passed them out during our classes like political science, college government, things like that. And we learn fact checking much more. And now we can like do projects that we make sure that it's just 
the truth and not misinformation. Well, I hope for our viewing audience at home, you can appreciate, as I do right now, just the excitement that I see uh, and feel emanating off of you about making sure that you can really understand that what you see may or may not be relevant or accurate news and information. So it makes me want to ask you, Dr. Finneman, I mean, can you... Can you help us understand the concept of media literacy? It, it sounds very esoteric, but, but what is it and how do we apply its tools and principles to our day-to-day lives? I mean, we have so much coming at us all the time. How do we do it? Well, I mean, the simplest way to define media literacy would be knowing which information is credible. And which isn't. I mean, that's really the simplest way to sum it up. Uh, at the University of Kansas, we actually have an entire course that is built on training students to recognize what information is credible and which isn't. And there's a series of six to eight steps that people can take. And the, the problem is, is that most people, when they're scrolling through social, are very casual and they don't want to take that yeah, much yeah. time to have to go through each of these six to eight steps. Um, but we're trying to teach our students, our future journalists, to know these things so that they're built automatically automatically into their minds. Okay, so that's for future journalists, which is great because mm-hmm. they're the ones that we're going to be yeah. turning to. to get to, how does the average person do it's it? It's the same thing. It's the okay. same okay. thing, the same six to eight steps that real people can use, which is, you know, first of all, look to see who the publisher is. Is there an About Us section on the website? If there's not, that's a first red flag. Mm-hmm. A second red flag is, is there contact information? Can you actually get a hold of the person that created this information on that website? Is there a byline or the name of somebody tied to that content who is, you know, acknowledging that they wrote it? Are there human sources who were talked to for this story? How is the grammar? How is the spelling? What are the kind of ads on the page? Are they very junky looking ads? What kind of images are on the page? So all of these things combined together can help people recognize fake information. And are there what you would consider truly reliable information sources? I think that's a lot of what happens with most of us in the public. We want to just go to that one space or one or two places that we know there, you know, whatever the proverbial Walter Cronkite or whatever it is for the era that we trust. How do we identify even, even among those six steps that you just outlined, who those main groups are? Can we rely on some of these legacy groups like we used to? Yes, absolutely. You can. Uh, that's one of the things I'm glad you mentioned Walter Cronkite because I'm a journalism historian. And so every semester, my students do oral histories with their grandparents and capture their media memories. And Walter Walter Cronkite always comes up, mm. and there's this collective memory built up that this is this was an era when journalism was what it should have been, right? And the thing that's interesting is that can still apply today, right? I mean, you still, back then it was you had the three network TV channels, and you had your local paper. People still have those options today, and that's what I would encourage them to use. So that, that begs the question for me, uh, Ashley. In your experience in research, what impact does misinformation have on public discourse and how can we, in public opinion for that matter too, and how do we sort of maneuver through those waters as well? That's a fantastic question. And I think in good news, it actually has maybe less of an effect than what people think it does, particularly online. I Somebody, for instance, who doesn't, it loves, or not loves vaccines, but is, uh, wants to get a vaccine is probably not going to change their minds because they see one piece of information. What the problem is, is when all of the pieces of their information environment start 
amplifying that information. So if you, they see the information from their friends and family on social media, right. and then they also see it if it's amplified on cable news stations, and then it's amplified by politicians, that's when it gets to be a, a major problem. So misinformation, ha we need to be concerned, we need to be paying attention to it, but it has a reinforcing effect, and the most concerning uh, impacts come when it becomes amplified in uh, by people and news sites and politicians who have a really large audience. So before I go uh, come back to Cami and to Antonia with a few questions, I, I want to ask you, Ashley, what is the role of civility in all of this, and, and does it is that something we should expect? As consumers of news and information in this country, it seems like that is something that is often absent and sometimes purposely so. Uh, yeah, I, I get concerned most when people who have power, so particularly, again, politicians, are attacking individuals or are using incivility to uh, go after people, uh, especially when we think of our digital environment. If a uh, presidential candidate attacks an individual person, then all of their followers start doing the same thing. Uh, and that can actually shut down speech. It can distract from accurate information. And so that is really problematic for me. Um, sometimes I think, you know, a, a, a protest might use some uncivil language and sure. that doesn't bother me quite as much. But when people in power are using it to enforce their own beliefs and shut down discourse from people who don't have it, that can it can change who even wants to participate in public, and that is really concerning. And, and that's really sort of the heart of the question for me, and it, 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 it makes me feel like that there are sources of information that we have gone to, that we've relied upon. There are people that we thought we could count on to be civil and to, to bring us the full truth. And now it just sort of, and, and again, I don't want to paint with such a broad brushstroke, but I'm a consumer of news and information just like everybody else. And I don't know about you, Antonia, but I sometimes have a hard time discerning when something is accurate, if it's reliable, if it's credible. And so I'm wondering if if this experience has changed how you view and and consume media? And do you think it will have any impact on your peers? Yeah, I feel like it did have an impact on me before. I would just look on TikTok, Instagram, like any type of social media. Like there are TikTokers that talk about politics, but it's always one-sided. There's not like the two sides to a story. So now that I know more about false information or trying to build up your own opinion, you have to look at two sides. Also, as well as checking um, like... How would I say this? Uh, you have to look at what politicians say, not only what you get from the media. Like, you have to look at their reports as well. And I feel like it did affect my peers as well, because we talked about it in class every single time now before talking anything related to politics. Okay, so let me ask you a follow-up question. And I... I, I I have my own thoughts about this, and I, I'd be very interested to know if, if you were sort of follow suit with mine. Do you feel like people from other generations, older folks, view you and your generation as not really being attuned, not really caring, not really knowing how to sort through misinformation and fake news and alternative facts and all of these things. And they sort of dismiss it with, oh, you know, you're just getting all your news off of TikTok or Instagram. Is that fair in your view? I feel like it's not fair. Like, um, I would say that adults need to have an open view now. Like, this is a new, different generation. We're coming to change 
things in the United States as well, as well as politics, maybe. Um, so the way we view news is totally different the way they view it. How, so, how do you view it? How do you view news? Is it, um, is it just opinion or is it fact, do you feel? I feel like it's between both. Like okay. there isn't a way for me to know the truth. And I will always think that news sugarcoat some of the things that are happening happening in the United States. So, Cami, I've got, I've got to bring it home to us who are in media and ask, what do you feel is our responsibility, not just to younger generations like Antonia, but also generally to the public who are coming to us and who are trusting what we say, what we share, and who may not, as Dr. Finneman said, go through that six-point checklist. They just, we show up on their screens, they like us or what have you. But what is the responsibility that we have to the public and not just in terms of making sure we get the story and information right, but when we get it wrong to remedy that, how does that work? Uh, sure. I mean, obviously always making corrections and being transparent about that. I think transparency on the process as well. Um, with my beat specifically going out to a lot of rural communities, a lot of them are in news deserts or they, they don't have a lot of pa local papers around people reporting there. So part of my job is explaining to them the process of news. Here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm asking these questions. Here's how I plan to use your responses, you know, to some degree. Um, just kind of being transparent on the process and encouraging people, I think, to ask questions of us, ask questions of what you're consuming, you know, be critical, ask those questions. Who's publishing this? Who's the reporter? Where does it come from and why? Well, you know, Dr. Finneman, Cami mentioned news deserts, and the Eudora Times has been referred to as a news desert publication. Uh, can you speak to what might be the very specific um, definition, the, the meaning uh, or interpretations of that term, and how the Eudora Times in particular and other publications who may be feeling a similar need do that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of definitions and a lot of um, discrepancies with what the definition is. But, I mean, the simplest way to sum it up would be um, a community or population that is lacking in access to local news. So, for Eudora, for example, they didn't have a newspaper for a decade. They had no local news covering them and what was happening in that town. And so, we stepped up at the University of Kansas and helped create a newspaper for this community. So you didn't have enough on your plate between all of your courses and all the things you're doing. You started a newspaper in conjunction with the university for this particular community. And is that a common model that you see where colleges or universities are stepping in with their journalism schools to, to fill those voids? Yeah. So I've hosted a national News Desert U conference for people um, in academia from across the country to learn more how to start these. Um, there's a growing number of them. I think there's over 100 universities now that are trying to fill local news gaps in some way. Just this morning, Boston University called me looking for advice on how to start their own. So you're really starting to see this model take off. And uh, apparently here in our area at the Eudora Times, I mean, we are on the cutting edge, the vanguard of that, which is really, really very exciting. Ashley, I, I have to ask you what is probably one of the tougher questions for the, the panel today. What is at risk for the American people, for the American public, if we don't get this right, if we don't learn to uh, 
not just be media literate, but to be critical thinkers about information that we get. Because I feel like uh, those who are determined to, you know, be the propagators of misinformation are not going to change, right? What's at risk for this country if we don't do a better job of really understanding what is and isn't news? Again, fantastic question, and it is a tough one, so I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, but I think that some of the problems that come, that are we're seeing today come out of the fact that we've had decreasing trust in institutions uh, in this country Just for several board, decades. Yes, yeah, yeah. Sure. and media institutions are part of that, and so. And, and just our trust in each other. And if we can't figure out what information we can trust, which in, uh, institutions we can trust, and which neighbors we can trust, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to solve the problems that are facing our cities and communities and, and our country, but even more locally than that. And so if we are starting from a basis that we don't trust each other and we don't trust the facts that each other right. hold— we're not going to be able to solve the major problems that are uh, that are facing our communities. And so it's it's a very, very large challenge. And I'm going to be unfair to you again, and I apologize. <laughs> I'm going to push a little bit further and, and into the arena of our politics yeah. right now. Uh, what do you feel is at risk in that arena? Because just as Antonia said, I mean, you, you have these politicians sometimes who are out there, they're sharing this information yeah. and and people either, if, if you like them, you believe them. Uh, and you don't go any further than that, right? So if I could push that question a little bit further, what's at risk in terms of 2024? It's a major election year. There's all this cross-messaging every which way. What happens if we don't understand how to navigate through this very, very weird and 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 problem-strewn media landscape? I again, I'm I'm very concerned about yeah. about this question. I think we saw a taste of what can happen on January 6th, 2021, even if most of the people in this country believed that uh, the election was not stolen. Yeah. There was a sub there was a substantial group that showed up that stopped the election count for a bit. And these kinds of things, I, I'm concerned about them happening again. In, yeah, in because, that's, because that's, that's really interesting because we talk a lot about younger, younger people mm -hmm. not being able to decipher through misinformation. Um, but that wasn't exactly a high school no. band group up, up there at the Capitol that day. So really what for older folks who think that they know news from nonsense, how are they supposed to, you know, sort of find a way to be mindful about this? Yeah, and actually, several studies even before this happened suggested that older individuals are more likely to share misinformation online than than younger folks. Uh, so You heard they, it here first, folks. Yep. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. There, there are several studies found, finding the same thing, and they need to be aware of all of the tips that they've heard so far today. Uh, and also, like you mentioned, there's a um, an in-group mentality that if it's if something aligns with what people already think, it's easier to believe. The and confirmation bias. Exactly, exactly. And so finding those sources like legacy news organizations that might push people out of that can be really helpful. And just remembering that not everything that you agree with is always true. So being being critical thinkers about that as well. So my last two questions go to Cami and Antonia. So uh, kind of rapid fire around. But Cami, what does the future of journalism and accurate information sharing look like? 
Oh my gosh, I, I don't, know. I don't know that the I'm equipped at all the to answer are watching. that. I know this is a tough one, but it's 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 a serious <laughs> question in the sense of is journalism that the, the so-called fourth estate uh, is it prepared to do the work it needs to do to sort of be the guardian of news and information? Yeah, I mean, I think journalism will always be here. Or people out there reporting and sharing quality information, I think definitely look towards your local publications who are on the ground, who are a part of those communities, and really are you know doing the work to tell those stories accurately always. Not that other media outlets aren't, but especially local ones, I think. Really. To have that intentionality, too, yeah. is, is, is really so crucial. So, Antonia, uh, just a quick question for you, not to put you on the spot, but has this inspired you to maybe pursue a, a career in media and uh, accurate information reporting? Well, actually, yeah, I've always thought about journalism because I like writing a lot. I like finding new things, discovering new stuff that might be happening, covering the truth on uh, certain things. So, yeah, I think this will um, decide my future. Well, well, I absolutely look forward to seeing or reading uh, your work one day. Uh, that's where we wrap up today's conversation for this episode of Flatland and Focus. You've been hearing from KU professor and publisher of the Eudora Times, Dr. Terry Finneman, Ashley Muddyman, associate professor for the KU Department of Communication Studies, Belton High School student Antonia Layton, and my friend and colleague Cami Coons, rural affairs reporter here at Flatland and Kansas City PBS. You can watch that panel discussion along with our accompanying documentary on our website at flatlandshow.org. Up next, we have our Flatland follow-up where you get to ask our guests your burning question. Uh, hi, I'm D. Rashawn Gilmore. I'm the host of Flatland in Focus here on Kansas City PBS. And tonight uh, is our Flatland follow-up. You know, we just did a great show about media literacy and just trying to get a grip on processing all of the information that we are receiving and making sure that we understand what is real, what is factual, what is true, what is not. And so I think tonight's conversation with our guests will actually help many of us to be able to decipher through uh, that process. And uh, if you have questions, please hold on to those or drop them in the, in the chat, and I will absolutely do my best to, uh, to call on you if I, if I see you there. All righty. So I am going to bring on our first guest. So uh, Dr. Smirnova, I could not wait to get a chance to talk to you. I had great guests on the panel tonight, if our, if our viewers watched that, uh, Dr. Finneman uh, from KU and uh, Professor Muddyman, and they had a lot of great information to share about what exactly is media literacy. So I wanna start with that basis. Twofold question for you, A, what is media literacy, your best definition? And two, and I think even more importantly, why does it matter now more than ever? Absolutely. Great question. And I also wanted to applaud. Um, it was a great, great panel um, and great presentation in general. And um, I think the, the definition that was offered um, by uh, one of the the, the panelists, um, excuse me for um, not remembering all of their names, but I think That's was... Okay was um, just spot on about being able to distinguish credible information from um, non-credible information. And um, I think I add to that in that there was a little bit of the discussion about looking for um, sort of that um, hearkening back to the Walter Cronkite era of there, there being a legitimate source. 
And I think what's really beautiful about this generation of uh, media consumers is we recognize that there is bias um, in all of our sources. And so instead of looking for one source, looking to pair these sources together. Mm. So media literacy is about identifying credible sources, but also seeking out multiple sources to corroborate the story and to understand the various perspectives. So this is very interesting. You're an associate professor at UMKC in, in the humanities and, and, and social sciences uh, department. And I know this is something that with your work, I'm sure you come across this all the time. What do you feel is probably the biggest challenge to identifying misinformation? Yes, good question. And again, I think this is something that you identified, the panelists identified about, this is treated as though this is something that the younger generation struggles with. But this is something that we all struggle with, um, to we're yeah. all learning this together. And so I think the, the eight point plan was great to identify, um, is there a, a, an individual who can be identified with this, um, it, a, a byline? Um, do we yeah, see and that? I, they're, they're, I'm going to go through those because I was curious about that, Dr. Spinova, just interject. I said I had to write those down after the show. Mm -hmm. I like, we need this. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think, I think that is, um, in terms of how do we identify what is credible, I think, um, the older generation is also struggling with this because some of the, the established media, um, sources that, um, they also are struggling with, um, the sort of on the ground knowledge to, um, we, we, we hear from one of our sources that this is, um, the perspective. And then we hear from another source that there, there's something else. And so we're also grappling with it. And I think that's really, um, why it's so important for us to be um, uh, making sure we have a robust source of information from multiple sources on the ground um, so that we um, don't have this one-sided perspective, which a lot of our news um, outlets are increasingly um, becoming. Well, and you're absolutely right. And I mean, we, we saw what happened with Fox News and all the flat out law. I mean, it's, it's been adjudicated. There's been a, a verdict. I, you know, so I'm not saying anything that's not true, but there were flat out lies and it cost them almost a billion dollars, $787 million for just telling lies. But again, people who tune into that network day and night, and, and I know people who watch that network do tend to watch it day and night. They believed what they heard. And so you mentioned the generational pieces. So I'm really happy to be able to bring you into the conversation. Uh, the woman who will replace you one day in this chair as host of Flatland and Focus, probably. Uh, that is Antonia. And uh, it looks like she may or may not be with us, maybe frozen. I can't really yeah. tell. Uh, Antonia, it looks like you're frozen. But if you're able to hop off and hop back on, just a request to join and I will certainly bring you back into the conversation. But, but let's go forward uh, with you, Dr. Smirnova, because one of the things that I feel like is that that generational piece um, tends to be a situation where it's actually viewed as the opposite. It's not viewed that older folks don't know, uh, you know, real from fake. It's always assumed, oh, it's those youngsters with their TikToks. And really, what I experienced with Antonia was uh, a, a younger person who gets it. In fact, we've got Antonia back now, so I'll, I'll go to you, Antonia. We were talking about the, the generational piece, and I was just saying to our audience that you're a high school student from Belton. You joined me on the show tonight, mm -hmm. and you're probably the woman who's going to replace me in this job one day because you're so brilliant. <laughs> Uh, but you, you'll go into bigger and better things, I'm sure. But <laughs> Dr. Smirnova was talking to us, Antonia, about the generational piece and how a lot of older folks 
struggle to identify what's real, what's not, and, and where, where to get their information and, and how to know if it's trustworthy. Yeah. Do you feel like as a quote unquote younger person, there's a perception that, oh, these kids don't get it. They're not paying attention. They're only getting it from their little TikTok and they just get a 15 second, second clip of something and they think they know everything. What's, what's your take on that? Um, well, I believe, first of all, older people believe everything they see like on Facebook or Google. So they don't really trust if that is true because <laughs> they don't know how to work TikTok. So for us, it's like, oh, well, you get your information on Facebook from Google while we get our information on Instagram or TikTok. Just kind of like there's both sides. There are different point of views. It just kind of depends on who your parents are, like the adult, if they can manage social media as well. So they get the input of everything in general. So you participated in the Media Literacy Project, um, and you were talking about that some on the show tonight. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts that you would like to share with our audience here on Instagram Live tonight about what you learned. Like, what were the most significant takeaways for you and maybe even for your peers? Uh, there's a lot of social media. Like, there's always two sides that you have to look at, as well as there's a lot of fact checking you have to do before you post anything, you click share. You always need to double check before you share information with the world or with your friends. It always depends on that. How do you do that? How, how do you double check? So say, because uh, I mentioned earlier when I opened up the Instagram live tonight that I actually saw a story that is, it was so juicy. I mean, it's like piping hot tea. I cannot wait to send that to all of my friends. But then I stopped myself. I did. I was like, well, wait a minute. I know this is a blog site and they're full of gossip. I don't know if this is legit. So how do you check? Uh, well, I, use, I think it was Snoops, what it's called. I use that. Oh, Snoops.com. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I used to fact check my information now. After for a um, presentation, he's the one that introduced me to that. So oh, really? now I use Okay. <laughs> so yeah, that's how I fact check. And so at least there's the, the effort there. Dr. Smirnova, do you find that many of the people that you talk to or even the students in your class, do you feel like people feel like it's a burden? Because part of me feels like the expectation is that the media outlets or the media personalities that we turn to should have done that work for us. No, we're busy living our lives. You went to school to become a, a, a journalist, um, and that's on you. And so we're trusting that. And as one uh, a viewer put in the, in the comments here, like word of mouth remains the strongest form of information consumption alongside media. So how do you encourage your peers to practice this type of mindfulness when consuming information on media? In fact, that's a better frame for my question to you for your students and others. No, absolutely. And I think um, all of us, uh, particularly when we consume social media, it's sometimes a place to unplug that we think, yeah. well, I, I've had a long day. I, I'm tired. I've done all my thinking. I want to just unplug and, and consume. And I think that's the reason that we emphasize critical thinking and critical reading so much in the classroom. And we feel like a broken record, but it's really teaching and equipping students how to understand the bias. Um, what mm. is the agenda? Why would someone be motivated to present something in a certain way to evaluate, okay, how are they presenting the evidence for the claims that they're making? And who are the sources that they are identifying? And 
if we don't see that. And so again, that feels like work to be able to track it yeah. down. Yeah. But if we learn it and we practice it when we're in the morning, when we're, we, we have the energy, it then becomes second nature that it actually isn't that hard work. We, we, we start to see it. Um, and it's kind of, it's as you talked about literacy that when we're first learning to read, it's very challenging. Yeah. And the more we read, it's second nature that of course I can read that sentence. That doesn't feel hard. And so I think that's what we're trying to build those skills when we do feel attentive and alert and able to do that sort of work. And so, and so do, do you feel like, and I, I would be interested in your take on this too, Antonia. So I'll, I'll go to Dr. Smirnova first and then to you, but do you feel like journalists are accepting that they have a different weight of responsibility today? Um, and, and I shock people all the time when I say, I don't see myself as a journalist, I hosted a radio show for, for four years where I uh, was uh, interviewing folks and sharing information, but it was more editorial. That's me just sharing my opinions, my takes on things. Uh, but uh, at the same time here in, in TV, it is a little bit different. And so I'm just wondering what is the responsibility that we have and our, our, our writ large, are we stepping up for that? Absolutely. I do think journalists play a, a really huge role in that. And I think increasingly, I think it's beautiful social media. It opens up how many people, a lot of influencers become those, those points because we talk about, I want to find a trusted news outlet that we often right. have a, a trusted journalist. We have a trusted writer, a, a voice who we look to for they, they share our perspective on the world. And increasingly, that it's being democratized to some extent that we have access to influencers and other people in social media who are also serving as that trust point. Um, and, and, and I think that's a lot of power to wield. And so I think if you are that person who is disseminating information, it's, it weighs on, on you to, um, to do some of that discerning and make sure that you are not sharing it. I know some of like Twitter, um, used to, I think still has, I don't know, um, where you couldn't share something unless you had read it, um, I think, uh, right, Facebook. Yeah. And so the, those sort of things that are built into the technologies themselves to catch you um, before you um, share something without understanding what it is you're sharing. So, Antonia, I want to I switch what I said a moment ago. I want to ask you a slightly different question than I asked Dr. Smirnova, not just about do you feel like journalists are taking uh, the responsibility seriously to, to really process uh, and, and vet information that they share. Do you feel like influ influencers on social media do, and do you feel like they should if they don't? Um, I feel like they should because they have a lot of um, people that they like talk with in a way like they have a lot of people viewers they have many viewers that they're sharing information to so if they share false information people will go back and say hey you share false false information and will be exposed for that so they should in a way so one of the questions that's in the chat here is, can you describe the marriage between technology literacy and media literacy and how the two affect a viewer's interpretation of a story? So I would be very interested in both of your takes on that. I'll start with you, Dr. Spernova. Yeah, I mean, I think technology, we talk about, um, and I think this is something that also the older generation, um, as as you kind of alluded to earlier, um, talking about that TikTok generation, that's not real um, information, that's not a legitimate um, news outlet, but in the 2016 election, people of all generations consumed quite a bit of their news from social media, um, and which social media platform that is is stratified by generation. It changes um, every year. Um, 
but so there is there is some element of understanding the technology and the algorithms and um we often we think of these technologies as democratizing in that um we have access to a whole uh, to many more voices than we had before but we need to be versed in how the algorithms work how they as you talked about on the panel about these filter bubbles that um and the confirmation bias that the algorithms learn what our political biases are and they connect us with other like-minded people and so we may think that well I'm getting a lot of different perspectives but actually I am going to be getting a lot of people in the same echo chamber as me. And so if I want to understand alternative perspectives, I need to seek them out and I need to sort of trick the algorithm um, in these sort of ways. So there's some understanding the way technologies mm. work and the different platforms is one component to media literacy um, to also um, how are you, um, how are you, how are those sources that you're being fed um, arriving on your feed? Um, and how do you distinguish credible from non-credible sources? So that's a really good point. Antonia, I, how, how does technology play into, I mean, unless you, you know, you wake up every morning before school and you come down and you get your cup of coffee. I met your beautiful mother. Maybe she's <laughs> helped you get ready for the morning or whatever. And you, you open up the New York Times, you sit there and you fold the paper. I mean, that's not really realistic. So technology obviously plays a part in your media consumption. But how do you feel, you know, Dr. Sernova mentioned that tricky word, algorithms. Uh, how, how do you feel? Uh, about technology, do you feel like the algorithm is targeting you, you know your usage of these various platforms to to to, to frame what you see and don't see? I feel like it is because like I get my news from either Instagram and also TikTok. So TikTok also created um, this one page called STEM, which it also teaches you a lot of politics, math, uh, science, everything that you need to learn for school in a way. So now that's what I look at in the mornings. And after I like something, like it shows me more stuff related to that topic. Right. And then when I go to my Instagram, I like something different so I can keep it totally different. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Viewing. So like I'm from South America. So I follow different outlets of uh, the media down there and everything is t totally different. It depends where you follow because they have different point of views. So you always want to like follow two different things and depending on what you like it, it's like it basically knows what to feed you so you can be on social media even more. But do you feel like that puts you in a position, uh, you, uh, you know, any of us in a position where then, as Dr. Smirnova said, you're just constantly getting fed more of what you like or uh, what it thinks that you like. And therefore, you don't really get, you know, that that diversity of thought or contradictory opinions. Or as Dr. Smirnova said, that confirmation bias, like you're hearing the same thing from multiple uh, sources and it may happen to be what you believe. And so it just keeps continuing pushing that out there. Do you feel like you get enough or do you have ways that you go and pursue, you know, conflicting information or other sources? Um well, I like to find out more. Like, I like to search. So, I do go on different platforms. Because I like knowing more stuff. And I also talk to my teachers about it, especially Miss Harrell. Um, I love asking her about politics. I love talking about it. So much I like knowing stuff. So, it's just, it depends on what the topic is. I will read more on it. I appreciate 
appreciate that. And I, I love how the, the chat is jumping tonight. And so I'm going to uh, hold some of my questions. I've, I've got a whole page okay. full. We'll see which ones we get to. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, Dr. Spinova, in the comments uh, from my, my friend and colleague, Cami Coons, she, was, she said she'd love to hear you talk a little bit about parasocial relationships as it relates to this and, and, and hear Antonia, uh, Antonia's opinions on that as well. So can you describe what these parasocial relationships are and how they impact our lives and our media consumption. So I think this is um, getting at sort of how we develop, we develop these relationships through sharing of information. Um, and so um, part of um, the, the, we develop these relationships with people on TikTok, um, with people, influencers who might be sharing this information. And so we develop this trust um, with them. And I think this was something that was talked about on the panel um, quite a bit about the decline in trust in major institutions. Um, and um, that is happening across the board, um, decline in um, trust of the government, um, in, in schools more broadly, in the uh, military, um, in media. Um, but we do have trust in our interpersonal relationships. Um, and so on social media, we often are developing the, when we access Instagram, we have people um, with whom we, we personally know, we know in the offline world, but some of whom we only interact with um, online yeah. and not even um, in a two-way um, street. And so it, it feels the same that this is, I've developed this relationship with this person who I follow. And so I'm more likely to trust what they are telling me. And so there is that element. Um, but there's also the piece that we are developing a relationship with people through the sharing of knowledge. And that's something that we have always done before, um, social media, um, and these different forms of communication that, um, uh, Benedict Anderson is this um, historian who conceptualized of this idea of the imagined community. Um, and he argued that we became this nation um, because we could imagine that we could theoretically meet every person in, in the nation, um, even though that's, that's not likely to right. be the case. And one of the central pieces, he says, um, that um, is the glue of that imagined community is the newspaper. The idea that every day we wake up in the morning and we all open the same newspaper and we all mm. read the same major stories. And it is that those major events that glue us together, that, that connect us into community and this idea that we are somehow the same people, even though we're never going to meet the 300 million people um, in this country or around the world. And so I think social media, it, it does that same glue of creating these imagined communities. And we hunger for that connection and that belonging in addition to the information itself that we learn from people. Uh, if you're just now tuning in uh, to our Instagram live here, you're watching the Flatland follow-up. My name is D. Rashawn Gilmore. I'm the host of Flatland in Focus on Kansas City PBS. And I'm joined today by two wonderful guests, one who joined me on the panel for our episode tonight on media literacy. Her name is Antonia Layton, and she's a high school student at Belton High School. And Dr. <laughs> the wonderful Dr. Smirnova, who's been just giving me a watershed <laughs> of information about media literacy, uh, an associate professor at UMKC in the humanities and social sciences. And so 
Antonia, I, I take that question from Cami and I offer that to you, these parasocial relationships, because as Dr. Smirnova was talking, I realized that I am that person for a lot of people. I am the, the, the people feel like they have a relationship and that the, the news and the media, and even if they've gotten it from a credible source or whatever, sometimes I'm getting inundated in my, uh, in my DM because people want my take on it. I'm interested to know, do you have uh, influencers or others that you feel like you've got a relationship with, even if it is one-sided, where you're like, I trust this person as a, as a source for information? Uh, yes, I have, I have like stalkers that I do follow. <laughs> but sometimes they do that sound like this doesn't seem right, but you have to check if it's true, which it isn't sometimes, and it happens. Um, yeah. But I also feel like I influence my family. Like, um, mm, Talk about that. Yeah, so my grandparents, they're not really social media folks, but they still go on their phones all the time finding information. So when they find something and they send it to me through, like, we use an app called WhatsApp, I say, this is yeah. not true. Like, you just found this on Facebook. This is not true. And I, then I explain them to them how to find it the correct way, or we discuss why they believe this is true. So we have a conversation over those type of things. That's a really interesting sort mm -hmm. of intergenerational dynamic, uh, Dr. Svernova. And I, I think that um, hearing Antonia say that, it, it brings to mind several memories that I have of doing that with my grandparents or others that I know. It's like, let me help you decipher this. Um, uh, one example I'll give really quickly is that um, during the 2000, I guess it was 2009, Barack Obama's first year uh, in office as president of the United States. And there was this clip going around uh, through a lot of social media. And it was uh, the president with a line of dignitaries and he would stick his hand out and the people wouldn't reach back out and shake his hand. And so I remember getting that clip from my parents. And I, when I tell you, they were in an uproar. You need to talk about this on your social media. But I said, mom, dad, now I'm going to be in trouble because they, they do watch everything I do. So <laughs> I said, mom, dad, President Obama is not being uh, insulted. He's introducing members of his team to these dignitaries. That's why they're not shaking his hand. But again, they were, they had received it from several of their friends. And I think, you know, we're about to have a, you know, it was going to be a rough night at the NAACP meeting. So but, but Dr. Svernova, um, I mean, I, I joke about that, but I, I feel like that intergenerational piece is, is something that we're missing. And it just seems to me that whether it's older folks who feel like I only want the tried and true, you know, give me the, the three big networks and the one or two big, you know, daily papers and, you know, time and Newsweek uh, and younger folk. And I would say that's really anyone 50, 40 or younger. That's got a diversity of sources and resources, but how does that dynamic of age play into misinformation. Yeah, I mean, I loved, it's beautiful, Antonia, the way you were talking about um, teaching and sharing that information with your grandparents. And I think it is that we, we have different skill sets and um, uh, older generations um, came up with learning information from textbooks, from one, one source or another. And so we have the narrative and as we age, our, our brains become less flexible that we have the, this understanding of this is the way things work. And um, so I think 
learning a lot from younger people who have are still curious and taking in all this information, all these perspectives um, to understand that that the narrative um, uh, of the whoever is in power who wrote the history book um, is just one perspective and is limited and um, incomplete or inaccurate. Um, and so learning to fill that in. But the older generation also has um, skills in in terms of identifying credible sources. I think uh, kind of as we as you talked about earlier about people having the Walter Cronkite, um, people didn't feel like they had to work to learn the credibility exactly. of those sources. So I think older generations also have to learn that. And um, it can be really simple things like the the type, uh, the the font of a, a blog post. And I remember similarly teaching an older person, there was something which I always say Comic Sans is the least serious of all fonts. Yes, um, I agree. <laughs> but that's, that's something that only younger generations understood that older generations, they would share this blog post written in pink comic stands and be like, here is something that claims the world is yeah, flat. Thing, right. Yes. Um, and so I think it's, it needs to be this, I think having these conversations on offline is also incredibly important because um, it really helps us identify and connect with people at our human level and empathize with that misunderstanding. And a lot of misunderstanding occurs through just textual um, or online interaction. So, I, we, we are, that was such a great response and a segue into what I want to do now. We're, we're, we're sort of at the end, but I'm going to go a little bit over time. I don't get to do this on TV. I'm going to do this here tonight, though. Uh, but unless my director jumps into the chat and gets on me. But um, Dr. Finneman, who was on the show with us from KU and is also the publisher of the Eudora Times, an area of Kansas that basically was considered a news desert. They didn't have a local newspaper. She started one, which I think is pretty, pretty damn amazing. Yeah. But she offered on the panel um, six steps that can help us to decipher what's real, what's not. And I know, Antonia, this is sort of old hat for you because you were there with us when we got it. But I, I'd like to kind of run through this list and get both of your takes on, on, on these things, because uh, this uh, viewer, uh, E. Woods, in the chat just asked, how do we do that, basically? Here's what Dr. Fenneman told us. Number one, look for the publisher. Like, who's behind this operation? Go to their website if they have one, and look at the About Us. If there's no information there, then they're probably, um, not necessarily, but more than likely, if you don't want people to be able to reach you in media, then y you may not be a credible source. Number two, contact information. And that's something that I find is often missing. Or maybe they have at most one of those little contact forms, but it's not real clear that it's monitored or that you can really be in touch with someone. Uh, a third thing, and you mentioned this earlier, Dr. Spernova, which is the byline. Is there an author's name? Is anybody taking credit for this work? And I would add, are they a real person? Uh, and especially for some of these bigger stories, I mean, we hear a lot coming out of the Middle East right now. We hear a lot coming out of our local politics, our, our national politics. And so trying to decipher through that is a, is a very difficult thing. But I think sometimes knowing, okay, there's an actual human being who's writing this story and I can see what their credentials are. And that goes to this next piece of identifying the human sources. Do they, do they actually talk to an actual human being, interview somebody for mm -hmm. the story? Uh, number five was grammar and spelling. And this kind of goes to what you were saying about the font type and colors and all that sort of thing. And I, I am going to ask you to drill down on that just a little bit more. And the last thing she said was the ads and the mm -hmm. images. Uh, now, that gets tricky because if you go on Twitter or X or 
Elon's Playhouse or whatever it's called <laughs> these days. Um, the the you know the the advertisers are like Bob's used wigs. I mean, it's like you, you don't even they're not even like legit. It's not like oh State Farm or you know Nebraska Furniture Mart. So hearing those six things, Antonio, I want to start with you. Do any of those uh, individual tips or techniques stand out to you more than others as really one that you want to encourage us to emphasize? Um, I would. I would uh, what if you find out more or where did they get this information from? You can easily shoot them like an email wondering, hey, is mm. this what actually happened? Like, where did you hear this? How did you gain this information? Because you can question it and you can hear a response. I think that's really important to look at. Very, very interesting. And what about for you, Dr. Svernova? I mean, I know, I know it's probably a tough question for both of you, but <laughs> is, is there one aspect of this more than anything other? As you mentioned earlier, and rightly so, people are busy. We're going about our lives. We're catching a headline. We're catching a tweet, whatever. But if there's one thing that we can do of this list of six items from Dr. Fenneman or other things, is there something that if you can't do anything else, at least try what? I honestly, the piece of, um, to me, it's the evidence, like what is in the actual story itself. And I think, um, she explained it as, are there sources? Did they, I mean, did they actually talk to people in the, the writing itself? And to me, that's a skill that I teach in my classroom about evaluating the, the argumentation, um, and the, the evidence that they're presenting. So like that includes, are there links to, they, they say the unemployment number is this high. Is there a link to, um, who conducted that research? Um, or they said, talk to people on the ground and this happened. Um, sources say that similarly, are they, they either naming who those people are or is that like, are you then corroborating that with somebody else? So, um, there, it feels like that's one of the more onerous pieces of the media literacy. But to me, that feels one of the strongest pieces because we, you said you, you have this pressure as um, a journalist and, and you do because you are the, the communicator of this information. But I think we also need to all take our agency in consuming of this that um, identifying, um, is there, is there evidence here to support their claim or is this just an opinion? Um, and if it's an opinion, that's, that's great and to consume, but an opinion is different than, um, that sort of on the ground information that we might be looking for. So something that you said tickled my brain a little bit and I, I didn't have any more questions, but now I do have one final question for you. And that is to ask, can we trust what we hear or how do we vet what we receive from government? And I don't just mean politicians. Uh, you mentioned, for example, unemployment numbers. I cannot tell you how many times uh, I have shared with somebody either it's economic data, unemployment figures or inflation numbers or uh, crime stats from the um, uh, Department of Justice and their Bureau of Statistics. And people will argue me up and down because, again, they have been seeded with this notion and I, who's to say whether they should or shouldn't? I mean, but, but they just don't believe that the government is right or that it's the deep state or, or it's, you know, it's, it's, it's biased in some way. Can we, if we, if we want to talk about going to reliable sources, it's the government one. And again, not the politicians, but these institutions that we talk about. So um, 
I want to keep it short. Um, once upon a time, I worked at the Census Bureau, but a lot of these data are limited in themselves. And I always say this to students, we think of the numbers as the most objective of all um, things. And the way that you ask questions, so talking about unemployment, um, how do you... Um, how do you measure unemployment? Is it someone who's been out of work for 30 days? Is it someone who is seeking full-time work, um, but is employed part-time? Um, so all of those decisions you make will determine what are the numbers you get. And so I think um, talking about, do we trust the government or these institutional sources? I think um, a lot of these, these institutional bureaus that are producing this, they, they're, they have a lot of well-credentialed people who are working and doing robust, um, work. But basically my takeaway, and this is going to create a cynic in everyone, is that you should be cynical of everything, that there is bias in okay. everything that we're consuming and that you should assume that. You should assume that there is no information out there that is objective and truth and, clear cut that you should be curious as Antonio Antonia is um, explaining how she is that she's asking these questions and she's seeking out this information and we should all be curious um, and that that's um, I think we're we're lucky to have access to so many different sources and um, of information and so we should take advantage of that what a fantastic conversation tonight. I live about this conversation in the studio and I'm lighting up about it now because I think it's so relevant and it, it cuts across so many things. Uh, if we talk about COVID or monkeypox, if we talk about crime, if we talk about various things in politics and how important it is to consume information, uh, but to consume information from credible, reliable sources and to know how to identify whether or not what you're reading or receiving is that. Uh, my name is D. Rashawn Gilmore. I'm host of Flatland and Focus here on Kansas City PBS and you've been tuned in to our Flatland and follow, which follows our uh, episodes every third Thursday of the month. And I just want to say that I am, again, am very impressed with Antonia Layton, the high school student from uh, Belton. And by the way, uh, Uncle Mauricio, Tio Mauricio was in the chat and he said he's so proud of you and he loves you. So, uh, Uncle, I'm proud of her too. And I told uh, her mom that as well. So I want to make sure that we get that in there. Uh, Dr. Smirnova, thank you so much for your time coming to us from the uh, UMKC School of Humanities and Social Sciences. And I do hope that we'll have a chance to interact again around this subject, particularly as we go into this election year, for what will probably be one of the most significant, if not the most significant elections uh, nationally of our lifetime. And I want to thank my colleague and friend, uh, Cammie Coons, for she dropped a resource in the chat for us, the National Association for Media Literacy Education. And they apparently have a lot of resources that are available for free uh, online. So again, that's the National Association for Media Literacy Education. Thank you, Antonia. Thank you, Dr. Smirnova. Thank you. And thank all of you for watching tonight. Bye-bye now, everybody. Bye. Take care. Thank Stay you. Safe. This is wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us for the Flatten and Focus podcast. And in February of the new year, we'll return with another penetrating episode examining the KC streetcar expansion and its impact on affordable housing along its new Midtown route. So don't miss out. Tune in on Thursday, February 15th at 7 p.m. only on Kansas City PBS and FlatlandKC.org. We'll see you there for another engaging exploration on Flatland and Focus.